We are a nation of peacekeepers. For more than seven decades, Canadians have served in peacekeeping missions around the world. More than 125,000 Canadians have traveled to areas experiencing conflict and unrest. Places like Haiti, the Balkans, and the Sinai Peninsula. There, they've helped restore peace and security while facing extreme climates and dangerous conditions. Join us as veterans share their experiences as peacekeepers. We'll hear about their triumphs, struggles, and the human connections they've made. With courage, integrity, and loyalty, they've left their mark. Originally a Portuguese colony, East Timor was invaded by Indonesia in 1975. For decades, the East Timorese fought a guerrilla campaign against Indonesian occupation. Finally, after a United Nations supervised referendum in 1999, East Timor voted for independence. This led to renewed violence, as pro-Indonesian militias, at times supported by the Indonesian military, burnt homes, killed civilians, and created unrest that resulted in more than 500,000 people being displaced. In response, a United Nations mission was sent to halt the violence and eventually help rebuild the country. Retired Major Kerry Mould served with the Canadian Air Force for more than 20 years. As an airfield and construction engineer, he was posted across the country, but dreamed of deploying overseas. He always wanted to serve on a United Nations mission. After 10 years in the military, he finally got his opportunity, serving with a peacekeeping mission on the other side of the world in East Timor. I really wanted to go on a UN mission. I, uh, being posted to the Air Division, the actual section that, that arranges for all the deployments of personnel uh, from the Air Force to UN missions was one floor down from where I worked. So I went down and badgered the guys and said, you know, I really want to go. I, I don't really care what mission uh, to go on. I just want to go on a mission. So I actually got sent to, uh, to Kingston to do the uh, UN Military Observers course in preparation. The UN Military Observer course is not a specific mission-specific mission course. It is more of a general course. Um, and what they're trying to, to instill in you is what is the role of a military observer? Um, what sort of challenges might you face? Um, for example, there's an extensive first aid uh, portion on the, on the course because uh, quite often military observers are in locations by themselves or with one other military observer. After completing the UN Observer course, Kerry Mould was placed on a contingency standby list for short notice overseas deployments. Eventually, after more than a decade in the Canadian Armed Forces, he was chosen to serve on a UN mission. East Timor ended, be, ended up being the one that, that, that there was short notice for to, uh, to send uh, three staff officers to that mission. And so uh, I was selected uh, to go. Um, when they told me I was going to East Timor, I, <laughs> I kind of went, where is that? Because um, I didn't know anything about East Timor. And so I quickly ran off and, and uh, and looked, uh, looked up the uh, uh, history of East Timor and, and where it was and, and what the situation was there. So I didn't really learn a lot about that until I got the in-briefings from the uh, from D&D on what our mission was and where we were going to go and what we were going to be doing. 
it was a very um, uh, something that I had worked through my whole career towards. At that point, I'd been in the military about 12 years, 10, 12 years. And uh, I'd really wanted to go uh, and missed out on a few other missions just because it didn't correlate with, with my posting or, or um, I wasn't available or they weren't asking for volunteers. They were taking people from specific units. I joined the military to, um, to do active duty, um, to, to do something, you know, uh, that was important and for real, you know, most of your career in the military is preparing for eventual deployment overseas to, to some action somewhere. More than 600 Canadians deployed to East Timor in 1999 where they joined the Australian-led multinational force working to restore peace and security in the country. After the initial force returned to Canada, a smaller Canadian presence remained in the region. Three of us were sent as the second rotation of three staff officers, and as it turned out, the last rotation of three staff officers. There were, I think, seven battalions of, of varying nations um, supporting uh, through the through the island, um, the leading forces were the Australians, who had a battalion, and the New Zealanders. Um, but there was also Portuguese, uh, South Korean, uh, Thai, Filipino. It's a South Pacific island, so it's you know, palm trees and white beaches. And, and that was sort of one of the first impressions I got as we were landing. But then as we drove into the city, um, uh, the, the poverty level struck me immediately. I mean, uh, the, the, it was a very poor country. And, and I think at the time it was the sixth poorest country in the world. Um, and not only that, but everything of value had been burned. So every nice house was basically a scorched wreck. Um, all the marketplaces, uh, everything had been burned. They had ripped down all the telephone lines, the power lines. Um, so the Indonesians had done a very significant scorched earth policy as they pulled out. Um, and that was obvious everywhere. I had originally expected because I was a construction engineer, I would be in the engineering section. But when I arrived, I was told, no, that's been taken care of. What we really need is staff officers to work in the intelligence section. As part of my responsibilities within that cell, I wrote a handbook on the political situation in East Timor. Uh, it was a small island, but it had multiple political parties because of the fact that it was a completely new country. And so we were doing interviews with the political leaders asking, you know, what is your position? What do you believe in? And so I developed a, um, a handbook, basically a small pamphlet that could be handed out to different organizations. I got to attend a number of their initial uh, parliamentary sessions, uh, watch how those unfolded, uh, got to see uh, uh, elections occur. There was actually several members of Elections Canada who were there working, uh, as well as several RCMP officers who were working with the CivPol section. But I also worked as a day-to-day um, -day, uh, information officer. So we, we did daily uh, 
uh, data gathering from all of the all of the uh, uh, battalions within the the sectors. Uh, we'd gather daily intelligence report from them, what was going on, uh, issues, problems, all that sort of stuff. Uh, we put together a daily info summary. And then um, within the cell, every day a different person took the briefing who would brief it to the, to the general and all the senior officers. So we briefed the, all of the uh, NGOs on a weekly basis. We would brief them on the threats. Um, but for the most part, it was more, um, you know, these roads are washed out. Um, you know, this is uh, the, the travel in this area is very bad because of the, the situation with the roads. Um, it was more uh, environmental risks than it was uh, risks of crime or any sort of combat risks. There was a very large and robust civilian component of the, uh, of the uh, mission. So there was already uh, an organization set up to distribute aid, um, to deal with refugees, to deal with resettlement and stuff like that. Over the course of his six months in East Timor, Mould witnessed the positive results of their efforts to help rebuild the country. There was a, a lot more structure in the, in the six months, I mean, um, you saw roads and bridges being repaired. You saw schools being rebuilt. Um, you know, people were going back to work. There was, you could see um, some of the houses that had been burnt out were being uh, rebuilt. Um, the feeling generally across the country was one of optimism. I mean, you had, uh, you know, they had their first parliamentary sessions. Um, they had, um, uh, you know, deciding their own future. Um, just to give you an example, um, the most senior East Timorese in the previous government, in the, in the Indonesian occupation government, had been a secretary who worked in the Ministry of Justice for the Indonesians. That person was... Uh, there was there was about 10 of them were picked um, and they were sent to Australia for training on law. And then they came back and formed their own Supreme Court and their own um, federal court and their own lower courts. From October 2001 through to March 2002, the situation in, in East Timor had stabilized considerably. Um, the UN military presence had basically put an end to the, to the, uh, the Indonesian colonists' insurrection against the East Timorese. They had mostly left. Um, so there was very little in the way of conflict associated with the independence. Now, there were still issues with criminality. Um, and you have to understand when, like literally a, a Western person, the watch on their, on their wrist is more than that person would make in a month or two months. Like that's the value difference. Now, that being said, um, as a UN military member, I was armed all the time. I carried a pistol with me uh, whenever I left my room. Um, and so even uh, in the daytime, like 
we worked Monday to Saturday, um, basically 12 hour days. And uh, we had Sundays off. And so uh, Sundays, sometimes we'd go to the beach to, to go swimming and stuff like that to, to, you know, appreciate where we were. And when we would do things like that, there was always several members of the group who were assigned on Overwatch who would, uh, you know, for those of us who were going swimming, we would leave our pistols in a, in a pile with a couple of people who were armed um, and uh, so that to provide security. And I mean, I, I traveled throughout Dili on a daily basis. Um, I never really felt um, uh, sort of fear that, you know, we were going to be attacked or anything like that. It was the poverty more than anything, um, you know, that, that was, I think the, you know, what crime there was, was I think an issue of people were starving and, you know, needed food and the decisions were, were being, you know, forced from that, not from any, you know, feeling against the UN personnel. I left in, in March of, of 2002. Um, and I did feel that, that, I mean, it's a very difficult thing to build a country from the ground up. And, and I saw that firsthand. Um, and I, I did feel that, you know, there was a long road ahead of East Timor. And you don't realize it when you come from a, from a wealthy first world country, how much you take for granted. But the grinding poverty was just uh, something that you, you just don't get used to. You know, people living totally hand to mouth, right? Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're growing their food, they're raising their animals, and, and if the crop doesn't come in, they don't eat. Um, so it, it was, uh, it was a, certainly an eye-opener for somebody like myself coming from a very wealthy country to go visit somewhere where what we take for granted is, is certainly not taken for granted there. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening to the Peacekeepers edition of the Faces of Freedom podcast. Subscribe and check out previous seasons through your favorite podcasting app. If you have a suggestion, whether it's a guest or a story, you can reach us at Canada Members on Facebook and Instagram and at Veterans Affairs Canada on Twitter. Use the hashtag Canada Remembers and tell us what you think. If you're looking to dig even further into the stories of Canadian veterans, we have a wide selection online at veterans.gc.ca. Thanks for joining. Until next time. <music>